This podcast is sponsored by Cellar Plan from Berry Brothers and Rudd, collecting fine wines for future drinking. Hello and welcome to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Katie Balls. Venezuela is racked for hyperinflation. The crisis is now so bad that the president has instituted a new currency, which essentially cuts off several zeros from the old one. Will Maduro's mad policies make things worse? And back home, prisons have been in the limelight as we hear about the horrendous conditions in Birmingham Winston Green Prison. But is it a one-off? I talked to a former convict who says not. And last... Ross Clark worries that the prevalence of sperm donation these days raises the chance of half-siblings falling in love. Just how prepared is the donation industry? This week, Venezuela's hyperinflation crisis went from bad to worse. The very high and typically accelerating inflation quickly erodes the real value of currency. President Maduro has been creatively tackling the problem in his own way. He has created a new national currency, then pegged that to a cryptocurrency, and increased the minimum wage by 6,000% easy. In this week's cover, Jason Mitchell writes that money has died in Venezuela. With me to discuss how we got to this stage and whether Maduro's policies have any chance of working, a professor Steve Hankey, an expert on hyperinflation, who served as an advisor to former Venezuelan President Caldera, and Dr Julia Buxton, an expert on Venezuela at Swansea University. Julia, for those of us who haven't been following the country's developments closely, can you start by giving us a brief rundown of how Venezuela got to this point? Well, this has been a very protracted decline for Venezuela. In terms of the economic situation, I would suggest there are a number of factors that have led to the quite dreadful situation today. First of all, most obviously, the decline in the oil price. Secondly, the underinvestment in the national oil company, PDVSA. The state has drained investment from PDVSA. Thirdly, the lack of international and domestic private sector investments in the country. And fourthly, I would say that the government hugely overextended itself financially with a huge wave of expropriations after 2007. And then finally, chronic economic mismanagement. So that really, in sum, is how Venezuela has got to where it is today. And Steve, what do you make of President Maduro's latest ways to try and tackle the crisis? I think he's made a cosmetic change very similar to the kind of change that one would encounter if you went into a plastic surgeon in Caracas and had a facelift. You'd come out looking a little bit different, but nothing really would have changed. In this case, the new bills, the sovereign Bolivar bills, have five fewer zeros on them than the old Bolivar. I might remark on a couple of things that Julia said that were interesting. People go on and on about this price decline in oil, but the price decline, it it did collapse. It went down to $29 a barrel, West Texas Intermediate. Now it's about $67 a barrel. It's come back. I think by the end of the year, it'll be $75 a barrel. The key here is that the production at Petavesa is now back to its 1947 levels, the the quantity of oil is 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 low. It not it, it's not so much the price; it's the quantity that's really driving them into a hole. Many people talk about Petavesa and and the oil reserves in Venezuela, and they say, well, they've got the biggest reserves in the world, huge assets, and very valuable, and so forth. There's just one little problem. 
It takes PDVSA 193 years to extract the average barrel of oil from the reserves. It takes Exxon eight years. It takes all the majors eight or nine years. So with that kind of retarded rate of exploitation, you end up with the reserves being worth nothing. If you apply any kind of positive discount rate to, to something that's going to be exploited in 193 years, the value is zero. And the other thing I think that's important is the overall problem is they have a socialist system and a socialist model, Chavissimo, and and we have the dustbin of history is filled with these Sovi these Soviet type economies that that have collapsed, including the Soviet Union itself. Julia, is President Maduro's socialism at blame for what's going on? Well, it's a very long conversation, but um, I actually really don't recognise much of what's happened in Venezuela as necessarily being socialist, uh, which is one long conversation. But I think the real issue here is we, we've really lost a lot of our notion of what constitutes socialism. I was following the whole Fox News discussion the other day about that terrible socialist state of Denmark. And when we've had socialist governments in Latin America, as in Uruguay or even in Bolivia, which has done tremendous things in reducing poverty, there's rather less attention on some of the uh, benefits that have been delivered. So I think the challenge is less one of socialism. It's more one of appalling governance. And that happens under administrations of all ideological stripes. Now, going back to what President Maduro is doing. Steve, cryptocurrency is a form of new digital currency that many of us are still learning about. It's used for the dark web for speculative bidding. What do you make of Maduro pegging the new Bolivar to the so-called Petro? Well, the whole thing is a sham uh, because the, the Petro doesn't even trade. They, they introduced it supposedly in January of this year but the reality is it, it doesn't trade. It doesn't exist. So it, it, the whole thing is a fiction. It's a joke. So why are they doing it? Why do you think Maduro has gone for cryptocurrency? Well, they, they, have, a, they have a propensity to lie, in, and this is just another lie. That, that's, that's all. The rating agencies that keep track of cryptocurrencies do not consider the Petro as a cryptocurrency. And how could they? It doesn't trade and it doesn't exist. Julia, going back to the human element of this, how has this affected ordinary people in the country in Venezuela at the moment? Well, I think the, the great tragedy of Venezuela is that in the 2000s, there were significant improvements uh, in terms of access to healthcare, housing, education and reductions in inequality. It was for a very brief period of time and ultimately has not proved sustainable. And I think the great tragedy of what's happening in Venezuela now is that all of those benefits have simply been completely rolled back, totally reversed. Venezuela is now socially in a worse situation than it was when Hugo Chavez first came to power in 1998. And the situation then actually was pretty catastrophic for popular sectors. But I think perhaps what I found the most distressing to have to visualize in Venezuela has been people with, for example, late stage cancers, HIV, diabetes, who have no access to medicines. 
and in as much as it's possible to implore the Venezuelan government to open up a humanitarian corridor, I would certainly say that this is the case in relation to medicine and also the availability of basic foods. But this is a pretty devastating crisis. Steve, how does the severity of the current crisis compare to Weimar Germany's hyperinflation? They're really very hard to compare. German hyperinflation was higher than the hyperinflation being realised in uh, Venezuela right now. That that said, they were both pretty bad. The, the German one is very known, but it was both of them, in fact, are fairly modest. There have been 58 hyperinflations in world history. And, and to give you a recent one, the number three spot would be Zimbabwe, November 2008. Prices were doubling every 24 hours. So it's much, much higher than what's going on in Venezuela. Actually, that was the number two spot, pardon me. The number three spot was Yugoslavia in 1994, and the prices there peaked out at an inflation rate of 313 million percent in the month of January 1994. And then you've got the top one is Hungary, 1946. And, and that one prices were increasing by 207% per day at the peak. So so the big ones are way, way higher than Venezuela. That, that said, there have only been 58 hyperinflations in world history. They're fairly rare and they're very, very nasty, even the ones that are that are not up on the top. Venezuela's 23 out of, out of the 58 and it's it's very, very bad. Finally, Steve, where do you foresee this crisis going next? Well, it's a little bit hard to predict. The course of of hyperinflation and the duration of hyperinflation, in fact, you can't do it. I I can measure hyperinflation very accurately today. That's easy to do, very accurate. But to forecast what's going to happen with the course and duration of inflation is hard. And, And these governments, by the way, can stay for a long time. Milosevic in Yugoslavia, I told you the peak hyperinflation was in January of 1994. Milosevic didn't leave until 1999, and that was after a war with NATO, civil wars, and everything else. And then you've got Mugabe. Mugabe stayed around for over 30 years in Zimbabwe, and and the 2008 inflation was terrible. It it was the second highest in world history, and, and he survived it. Julia, can you see any ray of light for the people of Venezuela? Right now, I'm afraid that most of my uh, expectations of Venezuela are profoundly pessimistic. Uh, We have a government which is reluctant to concede meaningful democratic elections. We have an opposition which is hopelessly divided and an international community which has been very lax and tardy and altogether quite hopeless uh, in its response on Venezuela. So I think ultimately right now, I think we're looking at at least at a minimum another five years of ongoing instability and crisis in the country. It's a very, very sad situation. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. What are you drinking this weekend? Start a salad plan with Berry Brothers and Rudd and soon you could be uncorking something out of the ordinary. To start your cellar collection, visit bbr.com forward slash cellar plan. The disturbing state of the UK's prisons has been in the news this week. After the government was forced to take control of a Birmingham prison from a private company. 
The move has led many to point the finger of blame at privatisation. But Will Heaven, director of policy at the Policy Exchange think tank, argues in this week's magazine that this conclusion misses the point. Unfortunately, public and private prisons are equally as bad, and a prison's age is a better indicator of its quality. Will joins me now, along with Cody Lachey, a former prisoner at Manchester Strangeways, and now a prison reform campaigner. Will, in your article, you write about your experience of going into a prison for the first time when you were working for the government. What was that like? Were you surprised by what you saw? I was surprised. I joined the Ministry of Justice two years ago as Michael Gove's speechwriter, and I'd never been to a prison before. And I think what I was struck by the most in my first few weeks, I was given a kind of whistle-stop tour of a few prisons, was that the only ones that seemed to function well were in the category A. So they were basically the high-security prisons. But the other ones, the category Bs, you know, Wandsworth, Pentonville, those sorts of places, were, were in complete chaos. Cody, this week, as we know, reports came out that Birmingham's Winston Green Prison had blood and vomit on the floors, guards locking themselves in offices for fear of attacks and drugs being openly taken. Did this come as any surprise to you, given your time in prison? No, absolutely not. The first aim and the the last goal for a private prison is financial gain. And that comes at the cost of officers, security, conditions, treatment, food everything. And it has a domino effect onto the regime and everything else. So prison officers are outnumbered. I think they've got low morale and prisoners and criminals that are acting within the prison system reference drugs and bullying and intimidation, all that sort of stuff are obviously going to prosper in that environment. Uh, But it doesn't surprise me, both public prisons and private prisons are performing as well, or should I say as badly as each other. Well, why are these experiences so common? I think one of the most striking things is that most of the worst prisons in the country, the ones that are causing the government serious concern, are generally the oldest ones. And that is a big problem in the system. So a huge number of our prisons were built in the Victorian era. They are now basically dilapidated in serious need of repair, or I would argue actually closure. And I think what you need is a bit more investment in the sort of prisoner state that you'd expect to find in a 21st century country. Because, I mean, some of the findings, some of the stuff in the letter from Peter Clark, the chief inspector of prisons, was just absolutely extraordinary the sort of things he was noting and you would not expect it you you, we really shouldn't expect to find that in Britain today and one of the themes we've heard a lot this week and Cody's touched on it is the idea of privatization and the fact that it's G4S that ran this prison in your piece you suggest that it's not as simple as that do you think it plays any role in the problems well again of the 15 prisons that are causing the government most concern Birmingham is the only one that is privately run. Now, obviously, critics of privatisation would say, yes, but all the other prisons will have some form of outsourcing. For example, Liverpool Prison is in a complete state and got an awful report at the end of last year, but their maintenance is run by an outside firm. So people would point to that as the as the reason. But I would generally, I would generally say that investment is needed in both public and state prisons. Cody, one of the things that Will mentions in his piece is one of the problems is the inexperience of prison guards and the rise in the number of new prison guards. Did you, during your time in prison, notice a difference between experienced guards and new guards? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as Will alluded to in his piece, the the MOJ were throwing out this, oh, we're actively recruiting 2,500 officers. They they recruited 3,111 ahead of schedule. But I did an interview with the POA, the Prison Officers Association National Chair, Mark Furhurst, and he said himself, 
for the 3,111 new prison officers they've gained, they've lost over 7,000 experienced officers. Now, the fact is, as Will alluded to, again, I'm going back to Will's statement, and it's a very, very true statement. One old, like former, like experienced officer is worth four. I'd go above four new officers because the thing is with these officers, the young, they're inexperienced, they've got no life experience. Old officers have got the, they know how to talk you down and they've got, not in every regard, but in many regards, experienced officers have got that. They can pick up on the tension in the air. The man management skills were better. That experience plays a crucial role in keeping the security of the wing intact. But again, they're outnumbered, they're leaving the job. Staff retention is a huge, huge problem. And you've got these young officers coming in with no life experience, putting them on very volatile wings with very volatile prisoners, with drugs, contraband, where you've got contraband, you've got fear, intimidation, bullying and violence. Mental health plays a significant part. And you've got these young officers that they're, they're being manipulated. So they're retreating to the office. That, that, like Peter Clark, the chief inspector, uh, the uh, Majesty's inspector of prisons, said himself, prisoner officers were locking themselves in the office. So it's a very, it's a huge, huge problem. And it's going to continue that way, unfortunately. On that note, Katie, what reforms do you think are needed to make the system better? They need to abolish short sentences. They need the, the court system should have more faith in community orders, community payback orders, other punishments that I've been in prison with people for murder. I've been in prison with people that haven't paid parking fires. I've been in prison with people that haven't paid council tax. Short sentences, you don't get any sentencing plan. If anything, you're just left to rot in prison. I've been in short sentences in prison and you get no, there's no help. You just a waste of the taxpayers' money. They need to, rather than making prisons out of our students, we should be making students out of our prisoners. The sole aim of a prison should be rehabilitation. And the, the, rather than they're the putting money into resources around prisons, the, the £10 million for the 10 worst performing prisons, right, is being spent £6 million on security and like um, like detection, drug detection, things like that. Three million on repairs and a million for staff. They should be injecting the money into prisoners. They should be turning prisons into places of skills, training, education, resettlement and reintegration. So reform can actually take place because as it stands now, rehabilitation is a made up word. So people like the Justice Secretary, David Gork, Michael Spur, who's the Chief Executive of Her Majesty's Prison and Probation Service and Rory Stewart, the Prisons Minister, can wear suits whilst getting paid £140,000 plus a year. And it's, it's ridiculous. They're saying the right sort of things, but Rory Stewart said himself just the other day on an interview, judge me on my results. And if I do not reduce violence and drugs within prison within 12 months, I'll fall on my sword. So unfortunately, he's going to be out of a job within 12 months and we'll have another uh, prisons minister and we'll have to start all over again. Though it's worth noting Rory Stewart hasn't actually put Birmingham on his list of prisons that he has to improve. Uh, yeah, obviously Lindholm, Ramby, Nottingham, Wealdstone. The, the thing is, though, if you look at Birmingham prison, Birmingham prison, right, Peter Clark said it's some of the worst prison conditions he's ever seen. That Birmingham prison isn't even in the bottom 10. So what does that say about the state of those 10 prisons at the bottom of the heap? So, Will, is this uh, simply a case of investing more money? Um, you touch on something in your piece called jailcraft. So jailcraft is basically knowing how to behave on the landings, so um, how prison officers should deal with prisoners. And I think experience is, is a massive factor. I remember meeting a, a prison governor 
who had had you know decades of experience on the landings and he literally he showed me the sort of scars on his neck and face from various incidents various scrapes that he'd been in over the years and basically he'd worked his way up to being a prison governor he knew how to deal with people the problem as Cody mentions is actually that there are so many people on short sentences that they're in and out of jail for weeks at a time so what you have is a churn you have prison officers who don't stay for very long or who are very new and then you have prisoners who are only in for weeks at a time and nothing settles down if you imagine being a prisoner and I'm sure Cody could tell us more about this arriving in prison on your on your first day your immediate thought is going to be what's the pecking order here how do I prove myself who's in control and if the if the population is churning over every few weeks it's actually just means there's a constant battle for control it's, it's the law of the jungle essentially now, one of the things you suggest in your piece, Will, is the idea of building new prisons because certain prisons are now very old structurally and that is a big factor. And if the government were to do that, it would obviously involve money. Given that we're constantly told government budgets have to be squeezed, still trying to find money for the government's NHS pledge, do you think this would be a popular pledge for the public? Absolutely not. And that is, that is part of the problem that basically there isn't a massive public appetite for for prisons. You know, when you talk about rats and cockroaches sort of infesting the cells, I can't believe your average punter cares about it. But I think it's basically a question of priorities. Do we, as, you know, an advanced economy, a 21st century democracy, think that people we're incarcerating should live in those sorts of conditions? And ultimately, I think prison should be about punishment yes but also about rehabilitation about turning an offender someone who's committed crimes into a law-abiding citizen and squalor and violence and all the rest of it are not going to do that. Cody finally do you think that actually part of the reason the prisons are in the state they are I mean we can blame the government in some ways you know how they have run them but it's partly down to public apathy at the system and how much money should go to them. Prisoners are not on the government's agenda in many regards. I mean, prisoners are underfunded and under-resourced and they have been for a very long time. It's going to take decades, in my opinion, over a decade to sort out the the problems in place and everything. And like I say, like Will alluded to there, like squalid conditions, put in housing prisoners in inhumane, squalid conditions, reminiscent of Dickensian England, doesn't aid rehabilitation in any which way. It succeeds and it succeeds in de- de- making you demoralised, desensitised, dehumanised, and even more disenfranchised than when you entered. Prison creates monsters in those circumstances. And the fact is, reoffending rates cost the taxpayer £15 billion a year. The Ministry of Justice, people like Rory Stewart, people like David Gork, right? They can't relate to the people they're residing over in the sense of prisoners, right? And that's the problem. The money management of the MOJ, I think, is really poor. They're saying all the right things, but talk is cheap. Prison can't be both punishment and rehabilitation. The punishment measure of prison, the punitive measure of prison, is losing your liberty. Once we get over that, prisons need to be places of skills, training, education across the board, Making these prisoners feel like they have a sense in society that because you've got to remember 99% of prisoners, right, are going to be released back into society at some point. It's the way we treat them and the conditions that they live in whilst in prison, which will dictate and determine what happens to them upon release. And all these people on the right side of the tracks that want to brutalize prisoners, they shouldn't then be moaning if they become a victim of crime down the line by an offender that's left prison and goes on to reoffend. Final question. You've spent time in prison and obviously you're not a reoffender. Do you think prison worked for you? 
Uh, no, re prison didn't work for me in any which way. I made more criminal connections in prison than I could have ever have wished to on the outside. I was involved in serious organized crime. I went to prison three times, right? The only thing on my last stretch that prison didn't rehabilitate me, I wasn't sick of going through that mire. I What it was on my last stretch, right? I saw the effect my criminality was having on my mother. I'm not a mummy's boy. But I spoke to her partner at the time and he was like, oh, she's not sleeping. She's not eating. She's getting she's got angina, which is a heart problem. She she doesn't do more ways. She's traveling two and a half hours to come on a visit. And now we're on the visit two and a half hours back. She's sending you 50 pound a week. The woman's on minimum wage. She came on the visit. And for some reason, I, I had a light bulb moment. I saw it. I saw the effect my criminality was having on my mum. And I came out of prison and I made her a, a promise. And I said to her, I will never, ever ever put you through what I've put you through on the on the other two stretches I said I promise you that is it I came out of prison I cut all my criminal ties I now speak I do interviews with the media I speak at universities and the fact is it's I just opened my eyes to the effect my criminality was having I went back to my cell I cried my eyes out I'd been a selfish person and I could have very easily gone back to prison Again and again, the fact is with fewer police on the street since 1996, since comparable records began, you, you make these criminal connections in prison. You might be in prison with someone for, for fraud and they're like, listen, you get out, right? Listen, my mate's there. He's got a load of stolen credit card details. Hit him up and stuff. And because you've got to make money when you get out. You kicked out with £46, right? And... I nearly lost my accommodation. Right? I, on my last stretch, I was doing an eight-month sentence. I did four months, right? It would have been better served in the community, right, like litter picking or working in a charity shop or painting fences or something like that. That would have been a productive punishment. Throwing me in prison, all it meant is that I, I was looking down the barrel of being homeless. I would have gone back into criminality, not through a want of having to, but to survive and to make money to feed myself. I look at I look at Norway, even Scott, the Scottish prison service where justice has been devolved. They're showing us how it's done. In Holland, I think, or Sweden and Norway, they're closing prisons down because they don't have the amount of prisoners to actually go into the prison. I heard about Sweden apparently had prisoners shipped in so that they could house them because... They haven't got the numbers. We live in one of the most developed countries in the world. And the way that prisoners, apart from uh, in, since the Victorian times, in my opinion, since 1990, where the Strange Ways riots happened, apart from in-cell sanitation being brought in and televisions, it's gone right the other way. We're going back to the Victorian times. Prisoners sharing the cells with mice, rats and bloody cockroaches. And this is a developed country. It's laughable. And like I say, those on the right side of the tracks just look down the nose at us and want to brutalise prisoners. Brutalising prisoners creates monsters. It doesn't aid rehabilitation in any which way. Thank you, Cody. Thank you, Will. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I present the weekly books podcast at which you'll hear lively discussions from the best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there, from Charlotte Rampling to Daniel Dennett, all the way past to Michael Morpurgo. I very much hope you'll give us a try. Just search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store. Since Louise Brown became the world's first test tube baby 40 years ago, births by IVF have become routine almost 2,500 children born each year thanks to the donation of eggs, sperm or both. But with the growing popularity of donations, how high is the danger of babies growing up and accidentally having children with their half-siblings? That's the question Ross Clark poses in the magazine this week. He joins me now together with Laura Spalestra, former chief executive at the National Gamete Donation Trust and an egg donor herself. Ross, could you begin by explaining the concerns you have that you outline in your piece? 
Yes, yeah. Now, if where you have a conception with donated sperm or a donated egg, there is no institutionalised protection against accidental incestuous conception, if you see what I mean. This whole area is obviously um, regulated by the state, by the HFEA. Now, the law says you can, if you want to, if you know that you are the progeny of a donated sperm or egg, you have the right to go and ask and find out the identity of your sperm or egg donor. But there's nothing that says you have to do that. There's no duty on your parents, um, the parents who brought you up, to tell you that. And therefore, you could be completely unaware that you were conceived by a donated sperm and egg and then go on quite blissfully unaware and then go and marry your, your, your sister, your, your, more likely your half-sister, and then go and conceive what would be, you know, an in, inbred child. And, I mean, the, the genetic basis of, of the avoidance of incest, I mean, obviously it's been a taboo. It's not only a taboo in humans, it's a taboo in every species. Every species that's been studied on Earth has been found to have some way of avoiding incestuous relationships. Now that seems to me it's been sort of deconstructed with the huge growth in IVF. We effectively have no guard against it. And it's as if, I mean, in some ways you can work it out, you can sit down, work out the calculations as I did for the piece in this week's magazine, and you can come out to very low chances, probabilities of this happening. And it seems to me that that's, that is the defence, that's the only defence we have. The government says, oh, that's, and the HFEA say, well, it's so unlikely to happen, we don't need to worry about it. That the trouble is, although notionally you can get up with very, very low probability, there's one or two factors which really push up that probability. For one thing, sperm, donated sperm, tends to be matched with the intention of creating a child who, who would be closely matched with the father. And um, so that, that narrows it down. So, I mean, if, if you've got a ginger-haired father who can't conceive for some reason, you use donated sperm, you know, that will tend to come from another ginger-haired donor. And, and what that means is that um, donated sperm it tends to be used more like in the same part of the country where, where it's been donated. Now, the, the other thing is that brothers and sisters, if, if they're brought up together, if brothers and sisters are brought up together from a young age, that there's a very strong natural defence against them falling in love and breeding. That's known about. But if a brother and sister are brought up separately and they don't even know they're a brother and sister, there's a strange genetic trait. They are particularly likely to be attracted to each other. And what, what this means, though, therefore, if you've got a donated sperm, children conceived by donated sperm, donated eggs, if they meet in adult life, they are particularly likely to be attracted to each other, particularly likely to marry, particularly likely to conceive children while being completely unaware that they are actually very closely related. Laura, are these fears fair? Well, let's start by saying that I accept and agree that there needs to be some sort of control on the number of children conceived out of sperm donation, egg donation as well, but it's less of, less of an issue really. However, I disagree with 
the reasons, and I want to bring it into context. The article states that there were about 17 uh, donors who had 30 children, and, and when you read that, it looks frightening. But if we look at it in a total number of donors in the UK and number of children, and let's also state that that's still within the law, the majority of donors do not uh, conceive more than nine children. In fact, only 1% of donors who have created, ten, have created over 10 families. That's not to say that's an issue. I, let me, I, I, I agree there. Now, the issue of consanguinity, which is having children from your same ancestral line, i.e. with your brother and sister, is a real issue, but that's not why they have actually the HFVA so many years ago decided to limit the number to 10 families. Because, as Rose also says, to be perfectly honest, whilst you know, it's a scary thought and a yuck factor comes in as well, statistically it's highly unlikely to happen in such a transient population that we are. The number is limited because of the children born out of this who end up being adults. And the thought of them having even five siblings for some of them is too much to bear. Five, ten, fifteen. You know, I've, I've dealt with donor-conceived people. Said so whenever I'm sitting on a train and, and see somebody with similar, very curly hair, I cannot stop wondering whether he or she might be related. And that's a real issue. And that issue is there whether it's five, ten, fifteen or whatever, hundreds. Now, what the article mixes up in that sense, and I do think it's very relevant, is the difference between the legal framework which we have in the UK and the people who go underground. And that is a huge issue. That's what the HFVA said, that's the professionals like myself. This is a big issue because you do have people who do donate within two or three miles of their own home and may end up having 40, 50, 60 children. And Laura, when it does come to that though, I mean, we've addressed some of the problems and you, you touch on unofficial sperm donors too, but overall, who do you think should be vigilant about this? Where does the responsibility lie? Is it with the government or do you, is it on those who are receiving the donations? Well, the government does all they can with fire the HVA on regulating the numbers from donors and uh, donors are made aware that they can donate up to 10 families. Most of them do not go on to have 10 families and very few of them actually have more you know have more than two or three children per family the problem is the unregulated sperm donation and trust me the government has tried but there's nothing we can do about it we've done this we've tried to raise so much awareness and advise mainly women in same-sex couples you know these are the reasons why you shouldn't do this you know he is the father you have no idea what the donor is like you have no idea what he, what he tells you, and you have no idea how many half-siblings your children end up with. But so many are focused on, and so going back to your question, I do think that in the unregulated sector, it's the intended parent's responsibility, and, and they need to be aware of this. The, the challenge with many people trying to get pregnant, regardless of whether it's natural via an IVF clinic or on the ground, is they are understandably, rightly, so focused on having a child that everything you know is is ignored they're focused on the end goal which is this baby and you can chuck as many rules and regulations and statistics as you want as you like but it's not going to make any difference so but we've tried and i hope this this you know, the article will raise it again 
And finally, Ross, just to come back to you briefly. So we talked about the problems and when it comes to actually the safeguards that need to be put in place, I mean, a lot of donors would argue that they have a right to privacy. And if you were to strip that, it would make it less likely you'll get donations. What do you think needs to be done when it comes to reform? Well, no, I mean, as the Lord says, it's, it's very tricky as you're, um, and particularly, I mean, I quite agree with her, the, the unregulated side of it is is a bigger concern than the regulated side of it. What what do we do about it? One thing I would say is that I think that um, children who have been conceived with donated sperm, they should be informed. And if the parents don't want to do it, then I think the state should inform them on their behalf you know on maybe on their 18th birthday or something that may put off some sperm donors but um i just think it is essential that that is the case thanks ross thanks laura and that's all for this week if you enjoyed this podcast do please remember to subscribe rate and review on the itunes store we would love to hear from you and pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed in the podcast, as well as more from Richard Maidley, Cosmo Landisman, and me, Katie Balls. And we also have a special gift offer. Receive a free thermal insulated spectator water bottle with your subscription if you subscribe at www.spectator.co.uk forward slash water. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. Music.